Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome to the Big Chew Podcast. I'm your host, Maria Stockmuller. Here at the Big Chew, we ask, hey, how can we live on Earth without the stupid? What can science tell us? What can spirit tell us? So grab a bite and let's masticate. up at the night sky do you feel insignificant like a cosmic speck some people who don't believe there's some deity up in the sky get that but that's just step one if you can learn more about the universe you'll shift to feeling grateful to be a part of this incredible ride welcome to part two of my conversations with jennifer morgan Jennifer Morgan is a writer and storyteller whose illustrated books on the universe's evolutionary story are used in classrooms around the world. She is founder and director of the Deep Time Journey Network, where people worldwide connect and explore how a new cosmology, a new science-based story of where we come from, helps us to see life in new ways and to act wisely within it. Jennifer Morgan and I talk about how creativity is the universe's go-to MO for handling crisis. She'll also take us along her own path of spiritual development. And then there's that whole thing about eating dirt. You can find links to stuff we talk about on the website. Go to www.meetyourmyth.com and click on the Big Chew podcast. Now here's my conversation with Jennifer Morgan. So the last time we talked, you were talking about how learning about the evolution of the universe and this journey of transformation, that it helps us see who we are, that we can see our identity inside the universe. I'm wondering what you would say to people who look at scientific facts of the evolution of the universe and they see insignificance. It's like, oh, we're an accident. Why are we here? Do you think that the universe story counters this? I do. I do. I'm reminded when you say this um, about the quotes uh, that we've been getting from children, you know, and uh, children all the way up through Um, the secondary level, and you could easily take these comments all the way to adults. And that is, so when they first, like, hear the story, there's this sense of, you know, being humbled, Mm -hmm. like, like, wow, we are so tiny inside this vast expanse. And so, you know, what does this mean? This is, this is really, really humbling. Um, and then what seems to happen is that, you know, dwelling in that space for a while, but then what seems to come very quickly is this, uh, these feelings of gratitude and like complete amazement that we exist mm-hmm. and that we are uh, part of this vast expanse. And, you know, the sense of amazement in the whole, 
you know, amazement about the whole. Mm-hmm. And that we're here actually reflecting on this whole. Um, so I would say that the insignificance piece is not, it's, it's more like a part of the experience, but it's not the whole experience. It's like a state of mind that you move through. It's almost like part of the process. Exactly. Yep. And uh, so um, Kyle Herman, who is one of the presenters in our professional development series and who's written a number of papers, um, one of his papers is on this very topic and he calls it revelations, uh, something like uh, revelations in big history. So he has lots of quotes from the students. Mm Mm-hmm. And this theme seems to come through quite strongly, the one I just identified. Mm-hmm. Your profile in the Deep Time Journey Network says that you believe that, and this is a quote, I'm quoting you, Jennifer. Oh, no. What did I say? <laughs> Cosmology stories profoundly shape our relationships, work, play, culture, and institutions. So can you give me some ideas of what that looks like on the ground? So how does, how does a cosmology story affect your work, for example, or someone's work? Well, I, I would say, let, you know, let's start with our foundational notions about who we are, and then we can look at work inside of that. Okay. Um, so if you come at if you come with a world view that there's the human and then there's everything else and there's this radical separation between the human and everything else which is what uh, Thomas Berry, you know, um talked about then you would come to your work with an idea that um I'm not part of this larger identity, and therefore um, I can, you know, plunder the earth, Mm -hmm. I can mine the earth, I can poison the earth, I can put these pesticides, these herbicides, and if it does what is good for me, then that is all I need to think about. I don't need to think about the consequences um, inside of a, a larger Uh, web of life. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if I see my identity or my source and my destiny as being coming from the universe, being part of the universe and going back to the universe, um, then I look at it differently. So I see that everything I do affects this larger reality Mm -hmm. and I have to take that into account so you know like if you look at it like in economics they talk about internalizing the cost right right and you know that's so related to cosmology Mm -hmm. though we don't often think of it that way but it really is right because most industries totally externalize their costs so we're building x if it poisons the wells of the people living nearby and they have to spend a fortune on medical expenses that's their problem exactly yep how would it affect 
how you play. I guess it just opens it all up, doesn't it? It does, because now you see yourself, see your own creativity as inside of a bigger creativity. So Mm -hmm. our creativity is like a nested creativity. And that opens up play because now it's just not me playing, but it's like the universe is playing through me. (laughs) Like the universe is playing in and as me. And so that gives you like tremendous um, sort of power and this feeling like you're being carried. So you're like being carried and, and held by something that's bigger than yourself. Mm-hmm. And, and that makes it a, a heck of a lot easier to play when you, you, you get this idea that, you know what, it really isn't all up to me. Yeah. Yeah, so one thing that, that occurs to me that might be an example of that, say for where I am in Vermont or anywhere where you have deciduous trees and you have in the fall this this just riot of color. I mean, some of the colors in our area are like psychedelic. Mm. <laughs> no, it's really, it's amazing. It's like they're electric or something. Mm. And then if you go to do something yourself with color, it's like, oh, yeah, this is this is the way I do color. Or I'm using colors that were maybe produced from natural sources, or I am using colors that are available in the universe to express myself. Is that the kind, is that something that... Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. One of the bits of the universe story that's always been inspiring to me is way back in the day uh, when bacteria were producing oxygen, when they were really the only life forms and were producing oxygen and then there was too much oxygen Mm -hmm. and the earth could have exploded because the atmosphere was so full of oxygen. Mm -hmm. And then... I mean, you should tell this story. You wrote the book. <laughs> um, and then other creatures, other bacteria learned how to digest oxygen, learned how to eat it. And so they invented something new, and that allowed things to go further and to create what we have now. So it's, I think your average human could internalize that, that, we all have struggles and then we kind of work through it and invent new things. It's almost looking at the, the crucible nature of, of crisis to produce something new. And I don't know about better, but certainly something new. Absolutely. And, and more complex. So, yeah. So like the, um, the crisis forces, everything to rearrange itself and to come up with innovation and the case that you're talking about which ends up in endosymbiosis where these new partnerships are formed that didn't exist before was that like the cell within the cell and the mitochondria yes is that eukaryotes Uh, right the eukaryotic cells and then the mitochondria are inside the cell um, mm-hmm. and they are burning the oxygen and they're ma- thereby making power not only for themselves, but for the larger eukaryotic cells. Mm-hmm. So 
And that relationship didn't exist before that. That was completely new. And that's a fascinating example because it was cooperation that created the answer, Mm -hmm. created that answer at least. Exactly. Yep. So this huge leap forward in evolution happened as a result of cooperation, uh, Mm -hmm. not as a result of sort of survival of the fittest, not to say that survival of the fittest isn't also an important, you know, driver of evolution, but an equally important, and many would even argue a more important driver of evolution is cooperation. And that is finding ways uh, for things to cooperate in ways that they never did before. And it seems like scientifically we're finding more and more ways that parts of nature, members of nature, cooperate with each other. Where that whole red mm-hmm. and tooth and claw thing, sure, that's that's part of it, but there's an awful lot else going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's, it's very inspirational, I think. Yeah, absolutely. It, it so is, because then you can always ask yourself, you know, when you're hitting a crisis, of course... Maybe you've never had a crisis. Me? I don't know. But anyway. (laughs) Crisis is my middle name. Are you kidding me? (laughs) I take it you have, Jennifer. Me? I've never had a crisis. Let's dish about crisis. (laughs) Well, that's what, you know, last time we talked, you were talking about the chaos and embracing the chaos, (laughs) which becomes kind of a, a comfort. Yes. So if you have your own crisis. Um, right. Well, there, there are those two ideas, that, like what you were just saying. And that is like when you really know the story, the story of the universe and see the, the you know, the chaos that's involved in bringing about the new and then realize, oh, this is normal. This is not, yeah. you know, something that's abnormal. It's actually normal. Um, and so then. So then to ask the question, okay, if the universe, evolution has moved forward with new partnerships, through new partnerships, what are the new partnerships that I need to enter into now as a result of this crisis or this chaos or whatever it is? You know, what's being opened up here such that I can think differently and reach out to not only other humans, but, you know, other living things, um, thinking about uh, how I am inside of the whole community of life and, and what needs to be, what new partnerships need to be forged there. Is this something that we need to mythologize? I don't mean like in a kind of a deliberate, now we will make myths about this because that's not how it happens. And and you've certainly contributed to this by writing the story of the universe from the universe's perspective. But there's only so far that facts can take you. So how do you think someone can really get in their gut these basic principles of the universe story about cooperation, about crisis? Do you have any ideas about that? Well, you know, when you look at the mythic stories that uh, Joseph Campbell always talked about, um, you know, in that first part of the the step in the heroic journey is the, the hero is stripped down, you know, 
they're stripped down to their sort of bare selves mm -hmm. and they lose their sense of identity. They don't know who they are. And then they go through this process of sort of meeting these helpers and these guides, you know, who often come in the shape and the form of, you know, something completely unexpected, you know, um, and so those are kind of like partnerships, you know, they're like helpers and they, you know, open our eyes to seeing things differently or they give us the key or the, you know, the secret word or whatever that's needed in order to uh, fulfill the mission. Mm -hmm. um, but that's, you know, that is very much how it kind of works, um, you know, in the physical world too, where... Um, something discovers, let's say, a niche where it, where there's a particular uh, kind of food that they can eat, and then a whole a whole new species develops as a result of finding that niche, or you know, um, partnerships between the bacteria story, you know, the endosymbiosis story, but that that's also happening with bacteria that's on our skin or bacteria that's in our guts, digesting our food for us, you know, all these sort of unexpected partnerships mm -hmm. um, that happen along the way. But so your question was about mythologizing. I think I think if we can sort of look at all of life and the through these eyes of like really being present to like even when you meet somebody, like I, I have this practice, you know, when I meet somebody, I'm having a meeting and just be really present to the idea of how is this meeting uh, somehow forming a partnership or a relationship inside of this larger story of unfolding that's going to bring about something new. Like, how can I really be present to this moment of emergence? You brought up the word emergence before. And that's kind of like living in a mythological state of mind because it's, it's being present to the miracle of life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so it's not like, you know, science or mythology or, you know, somehow we can just put all these things together. They're all kind of pointing to the same direction, um, which is what's going on every single second is completely stunning. And if we mm. really were present to it, we would fall down on our knees, you know, and kiss the ground. You know? <laughs> uh, but of course we can't hold that amazement all the time but we need it, it's important to to bring it into life as much as possible
did you grow up, Jennifer? In Westchester County, north of New York City, a little town called Ardsley. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And did you have a lot of experiences in nature when you were growing up? I did, actually. Mm-hmm. I did, because we had a really large woods near, right near my house. Mm-hmm. And so I spent pretty much all my time after school um, in the woods mm-hmm. yeah, with our dogs and with, you know, other friends, mm-hmm. and, you know, swinging on vines and falling off vines and getting the, <laughs> getting the wind knocked out of us, you know? <laughs> jumping off of rocks, breaking bones, you know, <laughs> I mean. but I wonder sometimes what about kids who don't have natural experiences and there are more and more of them as I mean when we were growing up I think you and I are the same age which of course is very very young and there was more space Mm. you know and now more people live in cities how do we remedy that because we need people to understand this evolution and yet our most beneficial teacher is not as available to everyone Yeah, no, that's such a great question, Maria. Yeah, I, that's very important, and it's very troubling what's happening today. And I think that we need to do whatever we can to get kids outside. There are lots of groups now that are you know, showing how you can have sort of natural experiences, even in these urban environments, by taking students to parks. And, you know, even looking at, you know, the, let's say the number of different kinds of grasses that are, that are growing within, you know, one foot, you know, yeah. if you look at the weeds and you look at the, you know, different kinds of blades of grass, like trying to identify them and, you know, picking up a handful of dirt and thinking about the number of microbes that are billions of microbes that are in a handful of dirt. So, you know, even experiences like that can be helpful. Yeah. But that the whole first, you know, Maria Montessori talked about the planes of development. And in that first plane from age zero to six, that's the plane where it's, I mean, it's always important to have immersion in nature. But in that first plane, it's particularly important because that's where the child is engaged with the physical world. Because mm-hmm. that's what they really need to awaken themselves to the next plane, which is going to be the more imaginative world. Mm-hmm. So they have to have those experiences of, you know, touching and listening to birds and, you know, eating the dirt. <laughs> you know, I ate dirt. I did I don't too. Know if you did, Maria. <laughs> Eating dirt made me the woman I am today. <laughs> Eating dirt and walking barefoot yes. through, through manure. I think. Oh, wow, that's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the only time we wore shoes in the summer when I was a kid was to muck out stalls, you know, because we grew up on a homestead or farmette, you know, when we mucked out stalls and when we went to church. And that was, those were not the same shoes. But yeah, I mean, and I know, I know a biology professor who eats dirt. Because she says it's it's important <laughs> to kind of mix it up. Could you talk about your religious background? Because I think it's it's really fascinating. And 
just starting with your grandmother, the incredible photographer Barbara Morgan, and you said that she was very interested in Native American spirituality, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And so were you exposed to that as a kid? Oh, yeah, because I got to hear her stories. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, about the rituals that she participated in and um, her experiences uh, climbing up into the caves down in the southwest. I mean, she went to the southwest every summer oh, for, for several summers where she and her husband uh, would photograph. Yeah, that's where she, she, she really, you know, just became deme- deeply immersed in Native American spirituality. And they allowed her access to their ceremonies, huh? They did. Hmm. They did. Yeah, that says something. Yeah. And then it was later when she met um, Joseph Campbell and, uh, you know, really began to see the patterns of mythology. And then, and then she related that to cosmology as well. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I have this wonderful quote from her about how she studied the cosmologies of all these different cultures. And, and now it's time for us to come up with a new cosmology. I can't believe I read this. I, I read this, you know, well after I was even doing this myself. Was it in a book she wrote or a diary? It, it, or? it was in a diary. Mm-hmm. It was in a diary where she said that now's the time to come up with a new cosmology that, um, you know, that takes in the science. And then, and it's also, oh gosh, I wish I heard her exact words with me right now, but um, something like, you know, sensitive to the human needs mm-hmm. and, and at the same time has the science. That's an incredible uh, heritage to have. I know, I know, and 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 I'm I'm basically doing what she was wanting to do. <laughs> like you're in some kind of shamanic tradition, you know. Yeah, it feels like that. But but you were raised Methodist in a formal way, right? Yes. Yeah, so I had my grandmother who was not Christian. In fact, anti-Christian. And then my mother, who was a church organist and choir director in a Methodist church, and very, very creative liturgist. So in the 60s, she started to bring drums into the church. She had, you know, how they had those overhead um, projectors with the oil, you know, the oil, the different color oil in a bowl, and then you you know, it's like a see-through bowl, and then you tip it, and then you, you're projecting this image onto the side of the church. No, they never did that in Mass when I was... <laughs> they, they didn't do that It sounds like church? a lava lamp. Writ large. Exactly. Exactly. But you're projecting it onto the whole church, so everybody's having this psychedelic experience. How did the Methodists respond to that? Inside the church. They loved it. Wow. Yeah. I think some of the ministers didn't quite get what was going on (laughs) (laughs) and so was was your home religious well I mean you know we went to church and we would say grace and we would do all the usual things that uh, yeah I would say so I mean and and you believed that this was you know your your story yeah 
Yeah, you know. Yeah. And then what happened? Uh, then, uh, well, I went off to college and, well, I had always, always sort of been very drawn to, you know, different religious traditions and wanting to know more about all of them. And my grandmother and my mother certainly fed that interest. And then while in college, I wanted to take some time off and I researched different religious communities that I could go live with. And I ended up going to the Thomas Merton Center in Canada Mm -hmm. and uh, Madonna House in Combermere, also in Canada. Mm -hmm. And I was quite amazed. These, they're Catholic communities. And I had never really been exposed to Catholicism at all until that point. So you had a happy childhood. (laughs) (laughs) So funny. Yeah, so I was quite intrigued with all the rituals and the the prayers and the mystical traditions. And um, I wasn't thinking at that point that I would become a Catholic, but I was very drawn to the tradition, like just powerfully drawn. Now, which parts of it were you drawn to? You said the, the, the mysticism and the rituals, and so were there particular things that really spoke to you? Uh, it was like the, the, the whole of it. Mm-hmm. So the, the Mass itself was not so much a speaking, but more an experience. Mm-hmm. And and that's very different. I mean, it couldn't be more different. As opposed to ju- a Protestant tradition where you have the scripture and a sermon and that kind of thing. Exactly. And then, you know, some some lava lamps, if you're not, if you're not. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> but when you went to these communities, the mass was already in English, wasn't it? Yes. But it still, it still grabbed you. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah. I, and then, and then, of course, at uh, Madonna House, they had this uh, Pustinia tradition there, which came from Russia. What is that? And that's where people go for 24 hours to this little hut, these little huts around the perimeter of the community. Mm-hmm. And they stay there. They f- stay there and fast and pray. And they might bring something that they're thinking about or want to, you know, hold in their prayers for 24 hours. And then they come back and, you know, share with others or they don't have to share, but they can, you know, with, you know, what happened during the, that, those 24 hours. You know, the contemplative um, tradition of just sitting and, and so it's like you're receiving um, more than doing like sitting and receiving so how long after that did you did you convert um well then i went to an institute theology institute in california at dominican college yeah and that's where i met some catholic sisters and i decided that i was going to get a degree in theology at the university of san francisco which, which is a Jesuit university, and lived with these sisters. And, um, and then 
you know, they certainly didn't push me at all, not at all. In fact, if anything, they, <laughs> like a lot of Catholics, they basically said, forget it. <laughs> Why would you do this? Yeah, right. Are you crazy? <laughs> they got us when we were young, but why would yeah. you do this? You don't have to walk into this. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And, and yet you did. Did. I did. Yeah. And I went through the whole, you know, catechism and everything and and um, Sister Letitia Boards, who I was living with, she was my teacher, mm -hmm. and uh, we had the actual, you know, celebration at uh, the Newman Center at UC, at UC Berkeley, and uh, it was beautiful. It was on Easter, the Easter Vigil, which is how baptism or into the church used to be done, right? Although you were probably already baptized, right? Yes, I was already baptized. So this was just a like a reconfirmation. Mm -hmm. it was it was it wasn't a baptism because that leaves an indelible mark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I always wondered where that mark was. Was Catholicism? I mean, did it do what you had, or was it the experience you had hoped for? Yeah, it did. But you know, I mean, obviously, since then, I've grown. Uh, I, I'm sort of you know, meta, <laughs> meta, mm -hmm. meta Catholic or something, you know, definitely not the traditional Catholic, but I still, I, I draw a lot from it even now. Like what? Uh, again, it's back to the power of the rituals. Mm -hmm. you know, if you can um, see them in their cosmic significance um, and also you do have to look at the theology because, you know, some of the theology I don't really subscribe to anymore. Mm -hmm. um, but if you look at, let's say, the Celtic tradition, you know, which is the Christian tradition, you know, before the Romans arrived. Right. That that has a very nature-based um, spirituality and, and, an understanding of God that's very intimate. And I, I love Julian of Norwich who said, you weren't made by God, you were made of God, which is a completely different <laughs> view. That we weren't just sort of poofed into existence out of nothing, but we actually come out of God. That's, that's the astounding conclusion if you really look at it in that way. And how would you define God in that sense? I would say God is the totality of everything. Um, but it, there's this other piece to it that I think the Celtic tradition brings which is that it's not only like just energy, like an energy field, although that's part of it. The additional piece above that is that there's this constant invitation to go deeper in our relationship with reality and with the whole. So there's this intimacy um, to the relationship 
and there's like there's this constant call mm-hmm. and and our job in the spiritual journey is to listen to what is that call and so if you're looking at it in a universe story the language in the universe story is you know what what is the call to the next stage in evolution and that is played out not just in some impersonal objective you know billiard balls that are just kind of knocking around but it's it's an intimate call that our interiority responds to so there's this recognition and and then and then action so i think that idea of an invitation like the universe is always inviting us to to go to this next level of evolution and we need to listen to that i mean you could look at that in, in religious language too what what is what is the invitation to further growth and intimacy what is that and so that's how that's the the exploration for each of us to take on and how would someone who hadn't really thought about this before as an invitation where would they maybe hear those invitations how where would they hear that speaking to them right so they they hear it in everything that's happening around them mhm and it's not like i'm also a certified spiritual director so the the language in like the jesuit uh, ignatian um spiritual direction training is beautiful in this regard it's not like listening to the noise up at the surface yeah. but but it's like listening to the quiet voice that's underneath the noise so we need to distinguish from the noise the quiet voice from the noise and that quiet voice is what's constantly inviting us toward wholeness um not only personally personal wholeness but also wholeness in the whole <laughs> how are we bringing about wholeness in the whole um in the, in the places mm-hmm. where there's brokenness and yet there's so much noise yes there is so that's that is the art form is to distinguish the quiet voice from the noise now the quiet voice could come from like a child you know you're in a conversation with a child and the child says something you know that completely sort of opens you up to something that that's the invitation that's the speaking right there um or it could be you know the complete joy in having you know eating a ripe wonderful apple that's an invitation to be present to that moment and to really experience that apple and then maybe to go further and think about well what is this apple where does this come from what is this part of what is this universe that would produce this apple you know when you say the invitation that the image that comes to me is what thomas berry said was such a uh, a critical experience for him when he was what 11 years old and they had moved somewhere and he saw that field of lilies yes and he he knew in a sense that would last 
through his whole life, as you know, that that what was good for that field of lilies was inherently good. Mm-hmm. And what was bad for it needed to be corrected. So is that what you're talking about as a kind of invitation? Yes, yeah. that's, that's a kind of invitation. Yes, because hmm. he because he heard that, you know, he he experienced that when he was with the lilies and the lilies are what evoked that in him. So he might not have had that thought if he weren't with the lilies. Right. So and, and that was, uh, you know, because I worked with Thomas Berry on on my books and and that theme was coming throughout that that it's not only us imposing ourselves on the world, but the world itself is inviting us. So there's this active invitation. It's, the world is not just passive. There's an active reality out there that is pulling us. And so our job in part is to listen to what that pull is. Does your life look any different from somebody else's life who may not know these kinds of things in the same depth that you do? Well, yeah, I th- absolutely, because I'm going to make decisions based on this. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't be doing the work that I'm doing. Um, but I was thinking, too, I mean, you're not going to go out and buy a Ford F-350, you know, just to <laughs> drive around with exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, I, with my house, I tried to create it such that the windows, there's passive solar heating and, you know, working with the trees with the the time of year that the leaves come out so that uh, that shades the house. It's it's just being sensitive to how we're relating to other things. And I, I love this way of looking, you know, being present to the interiority of the other, like whether it's a tree or a human being or whatever it is that the other has is a self-organizing being. It's like um, Jane Goodall talks about the trees as beings. Yes. And yeah, I, I think that's such a key part. There was a German, I don't know if he was a forester or botanist, uh, who was on the radio, who has written a book about trees. I don't remember what the name of it is, unfortunately, but I will find it and I will put it in the program notes. Mm-hmm. And he was saying that trees commu- communicate with each other. They have memory. Yes. They count. So, for example, if they go, th- if a tree goes through a bad drought, um that tree is going to save water more than a tree that didn't go through a drought to kind of parcel it out if there's any future drought. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they learn, trees learn. And of course, a lot of indigenous people used to say that trees are the makers of the law. And when you see, like yesterday, my partner and I were walking along this old road and on this hill and a lot of it had washed out. And so you could see, I was about 15 feet down from the, the surface level. 
and you just saw all these roots and all these rocks and everything. And this is what's down there all the time. You know, it's yeah, just yeah. that we don't we don't see it. It's a whole different level of experience and communication. Mm-hmm. Granting interiority, not granting it because it's not ours to grant, but recognizing. Exactly. If we can encourage that, that's half the battle, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Because then you're going to treat the world differently. And, of course, people are finding out about the interiority of the animals we live with, the ones we don't live with, how they respond to each other, how they respond to us. And there are so many different kinds of intelligences. Exactly. And I don't know that humans are... (laughs) To me, humans aren't all that. Fish can recognize human faces. Are you kidding me? I'm not kidding. Fish. Fish can distinguish one human from another. I knew sheep could, but I didn't know fish. Fish can. Fish. I know. Who knew? This was fun. Yes, it was for me too. Thank you so much. Bye. Thanks to Jennifer Morgan, and thank you for listening. On our website, you can find links to the stuff we talk about, and you can leave comments. Go to www.meetyourmyth.com and click on podcast. You can subscribe to the Big Chew podcast on iTunes, and you can help us out a lot by reviewing the Big Chew on iTunes because algorithm. The Big Chew podcast comes out every two weeks on the full moon and the new moon because I never know what day it is. Bye for now.